Good morning. The passage today, as we've just learned this morning, is um, Luke, and it is chapter 10. Is that correct? Luke, Luke 10, 25 through 37. If you have a house Bible, it's on page um, 506. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. You may be seated. No, you're good. Listen, uh, that was, Josiah was in seminary all last week, by the way, speaking of things that they don't teach you in seminary, you should actually talk about your services when um, we're in seminary all last week, but that's on me. Um, and uh, uh, it is a good time, though, to highlight that uh, Pastor Josiah has been able to take some classes and, uh, at a church called Spanish River Church, and uh, seminary is through Capital Seminary in D.C., and uh, it's a program that I went through, and it's a wonderful program. And part of having Pastor Josiah on full-time has been how can we further equip and train him in the calling that God has given him. And so he was away uh, doing that last week, and uh, our whole church is benefiting from the time that he's getting uh, at seminary. Uh, so needless to say, um, uh, that's kind of why there's a miss in our reading um, and uh, But today we are going to do the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it's a famous story, and if you're just joining us, uh, you'll know that we're in a series, or you wouldn't know this, but we're in a series entitled Doing Good, Building Bridges Towards Racial Reconciliation. Now, when Crosspoint has uh, regathered, we decided, your leadership here decided that it would be really good to address What's happening around the, word, the world with the Word of God? And we find it incredibly important to know how are we called to live and function as the people of God 
in the society that we're in. And so the theme verse for this series is Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where Micah says it's a summary of the whole book of Micah. In fact, many would say it's a summary of the Old Testament. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? There's no question that God has called us to be a people of justice and kindness or mercy and a people of humility as we interact with the world around us. And that each week, uh, the ne- for, for, for three weeks that we're doing this series, last week we unpacked justice, this week we're unpacking kindness or mercy. Many translations say mercy. So you'll hear me use that word interchangeably. And then next week we're talking about humility. And I, I want us to be motivated or to be guided by three principles. Three guiding principles as we interact with and engage with the world around us as it relates to building bridges to racial reconciliation. The first principle is that God's word speaks. God's word speaks. God's word isn't silent on the things that are happening in the world. In fact, we of all people, Christians, should know that the word of God says something into the brokenness of humanity. And God's word says something. So in the midst of all the conversation that's going on in all the world, all the shouting, all the cries, all the anger, all the tears... There is the word of God that brings reality to the struggles that our world is in. And it also seeks to bring healing. God's word speaks. The second thing is that we should seek to humanize the conversation. This is not a conversation between the left and the right, between Republicans or Democrats. This is a conversation between humanity. It's about people. It's about those who are caught up in the controversy but lives are at stake it's a conversation about humanity people made in God's image in his likeness no matter what color what race what ethnicity what age what orientation we're talking about humanity and then third thing that is a guiding principle is that the church redeems The church is the bridge builder. The church is what seeks to bring redemption to the conversation. If we cannot have this conversation in the church, where else can we have it? And if we're willing to have this conversation in the church, it is a risk. But risk is worth it. Because risk means restoration. Risk means reconciliation. Risk means that things are being rebuilt and being rebuilt around the nature and character of our God and King. And so last week we talked about justice and we unpacked justice from the book of Micah. In fact, it was kind of a survey through the book of Micah to show us the theme of justice, not only in the book of Micah, but also in all the Bible, that God carries, cares very much about justice. And that God's care about justice causes him to do something. And God's care about justice causes us 
to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And then today we're talking about mercy. And we're going to unpack the story of the Good Samaritan to see the mercy that Christ commands his church to live in, to love mercy. So there's a story that I recall about receiving mercy from an unexpected person. A few, uh, several years ago, our family loaded up one hot summer day, uh, pre-COVID-19, by the way. Um, we were going to Aquatica. And so we loaded up the minivan, and we were driving down the B-line to uh, Aquatica. And as we were driving down the B-line, I heard a pop, and then I felt doo -doo 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 and then I immediately knew it. Man, I said, kids, our trip to Aquatica is going to be delayed, and this is not going to be very fun. So we got off the exit. We uh, hit 7-Eleven. It was right there. And so we were luckily able to get out of harm's way. And it must have felt like it's going to feel today. I mean, it felt like 105 degrees outside. And I'm not very handy, by the way. Like, you don't want to really give me a, a lug nut because I don't know what to do with it. Uh, in fact, you know, but yet I'm opening my back tire hatch. The other problem with me being not handy is I'm not, I'm cheap also, so I didn't have AAA. Um, and so we, I opened up the hatch to the minivan, and I'm looking for all this stuff, and I must have looked frantic. I must have looked frustrated, and then I, I, I turn around, and, and to my surprise, someone's right behind me. And He's a large African-American man, and he's got his hat sideways and his pants down below his waist. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm wondering what he's here for. And then he says, you need some help. And my immediate thought was, no, I I've got this. And so I said, hey, thanks so much for offering, but I've got this. And then he said, no, you need some help. <laughs> And then I got out of the way, and he just did his thing, man. He found the, the um, whatever it's called. I don't even <laughs> he found all the stuff in the car, and that tire was changed in 15 minutes. And I remember trying to offer him just 20 bucks, it's some cash that I had, and he said, I didn't do this for money. I did it to help you. And I thought, man, so kind. And then as I drove away, I started to question myself. I started to question my prejudices, my stereotypes, my portrayal of who I viewed this person to be initially. And then that surprise was actually a man who came to me and showed me compassion, showed me mercy, and proved me wrong in a lot of ways that he wasn't trying to. It just by nature happened to say that I received mercy from an unexpected person. And God was gracious to me that day through him. And what I want us to understand is the big idea for our sermon today. Is that mercy, indiscriminate mercy, is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. Indiscriminate mercy. Mercy is a non-negotiable in, in the Christian life. That day, I was shown indiscriminate mercy 
from an unexpected person and it changed me. And when we show indiscriminate mercy in unexpected ways, it will change us and it will change the world around us. Now, you might be asking, what does the story of the Good Samaritan have to do with racial reconciliation? What does the story of the Good Samaritan have to do with racism? Interesting thing about the time that Jesus came into is he came into a world of racial polarization. And the racial polarization that Jesus came into was among his own people, the Jewish people. And you have the word Samaritan in the Bible. When you think of it, it's not like a campground called the Good Samaritan. Or when I was in South Florida, there's a hospital called Good Samaritan Hospital. They didn't think of it that way. In fact, if the Jew saw the word Samaritan or they would associate with the person Samaritan and it would be anything but good. And as they associated this word Samaritan, as Jesus said it, it would have hit those prejudices, those stereotypes, those preconceived notions. In fact, one uh, historian writes that this was a common phrase that the Jews would use for the Samaritans. They would say, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. Now, I had a pork steak yesterday for lunch, and it was really good. And we wouldn't really think much of that phrase, but to the Jew, it would have been apostasy to eat the flesh of swine because the flesh of swine was unclean. And the Samaritan was the epitome of anything and everything unclean. And to eat the bread that a Samaritan would bake would be to consider yourself abominable or unclean. And so this is the tensions that Jesus speaks into. And there's three questions that's asked in this story. And so if you're following along with me in your Bible, I encourage you to do so. You'll see these questions. In fact, if you've got uh, a, a pen or a pencil, you can underline these questions uh, in the story because there are three very important questions for um, us to understand the parable. Uh, the first question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The second question is, who is my neighbor? And the third question is, which one proved to be the neighbor. So let's look at the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, this is the, the, the interaction that Jesus has with the lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, there's a lawyer trying to trap Jesus. Um, and when I say lawyer, you can think about today's lawyers as it relates to the law, but you also want to think about them in terms of having a specialty in the biblical law. They would use the law of the Bible to write cases or to go and argue in courts for things like divorces or land disputes or things like that. And so they were well versed in the word of the law. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you're the lawyer here. How do you read it? You know the answer. And then the lawyer says back to Jesus, love God with everything that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And as Jesus asked this question, uh, uh, how, how do you read it? You see that the lawyer knows the Bible because Jesus himself was asked the question of great importance, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus summarized the whole law of the Old Testament in those two answers. Maybe the lawyer was just reciting what he had heard Jesus say back to him. We don't really know, but we know that he answered in the same way that Jesus answered what is the greatest commandment. It's to love God and love others. And that question is the all-defining moment for the lawyer in Jesus's definition of the eternal life stakes it all hinges on those two commands love God and love your neighbor as yourself and so I can imagine at this point in the conversation Jesus was ready to be done with it and so maybe he turned around maybe he went to walk away maybe he was ready to ask answer someone else's question and but before he could do it the lawyer Again, standing up in the back, he says, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus answers him, not by answering the question, but by telling him a parable, by telling him a story. Now, it's helpful for us to know why this lawyer is asking Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? Because as a lawyer, he wanted to know how to fulfill the contract what were its obligations and limitations? What would he be required to? And so down to the T, he wanted to know the asterisks. What does it exclude? What am I, how do you spell this out perfectly for me? How do I know if I am a law-abiding citizen? Once I stand before God in judgment, how can I pull out the contract and say, I fulfilled my requirements, I fulfilled my duty. Now let me in. Now give me eternal life. Well, Jesus doesn't answer him directly in that. Jesus knows the eternal life stakes are high. So high that he tells a story. A story that he wants his readers to see themselves in. A story that he wants us to see ourselves in. And so the story goes like this. There's a man left for dead on the side of a Jericho road. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Jericho road, you would know that it's a road that's about 30 miles long, and it descends from Jerusalem to Jericho in, at about 2,000 feet in those 30 miles. It's also a barren road with little vegetation, with many caves and crevices and rocks, and so it would have been easy for bandits and robbers and murderers to do some harm to unsuspected passerbyers. And that's exactly who this man is that was left for dead on the side of the road. He was an unsuspecting passerbyer who was robbed and almost, almost killed. And it's assumed just by what Jesus says, if no one would help him, then in all likelihood he would die. And now there's these characters that come into the story. You have the man left for dead on the side of the road, who, by the way, we would assume to be Jewish, just given the context to which Jesus is uh, sharing this story. And then there's a priest and a Levite. And both the priest and the Levite, they walk by. They pass by this man. Now, a little bit of context to the duties and roles of the priest and the Levite is a priest and the Levite were 
were, uh, Jericho was a popular place of residence for the, for the priest and the Levite. And part of why it was a popular place of residence for them is because it was a little bit cheaper. Uh, and then it was actually not, actually not that long for them to get, although it would take them a long time to get there. In those times, it, it was only a 30-mile trip. Um, and so for us, it'd be like a 30-minute 30 30 drive on the beeline unless you get a flat tire on the way there. <laughs> and so, um, uh, but on their way, if they would have been uh, encountered this this man left for dead on the way there, then they would have had thought about the cleanliness laws. Think about our quarantine. If you're exposed to the coronavirus, you need to be quarantined for 14 days. Well, that was somewhat like it was then. If you were exposed to a dead person and you were a priest, then you would have been uncleaned, and so you would have needed to self-quarantine. And that would have absolutely inhibited the way you could serve the temple. So the priest was like varsity, and the Levite was like junior varsity. And uh, the priest was the main guy in the temple, and the Levite was his assistant. And both the priest and the Levite, who were known to have exceptional character, exceptional people in every way, were people who may have looked at pity, with, at this man with pity, but who passed by on the other side. And then you have the Samaritan now. Again, when they heard that word Samaritan, they would have thought about an enemy. They would have thought about the scum of the earth. They would have never associated with a Samaritan as someone who would so sacrificially help a Jew left for dead on the side of the road. But the Samaritan, he looked at him and he had compassion. And that compassion was something that the Samaritan acted on. He saw him and he stopped. Now, mind you, there were all the same dangers that were there when the man got robbed and was left for dead. Mind you that this man was going somewhere and now he had limited his journey significantly by helping this man because he was not going to go anywhere fast after doing this. And as he stopped, he began to nurse the man back to life. He put him on his donkey, he anointed his head with oil, he gave him water, he gave him anything that he had need. He put him on his own donkey and he brought him to the inn. There's even some, something significant about this story because an inn wasn't like the Holiday Inn back then. An inn was like a one-stop shop for anything a traveler could need, including recovery of health. And so as he dropped this man off at the inn, he knew that if he would drop him off at the inn without helping him beyond what, was, what, what he could afford, because the man had nothing, then he knew that the man would be in debt to the innkeeper. And if this man was in debt to the innkeeper, he could have become a slave or indentured servant to work off his debts. And so the Samaritan went above and beyond, and he offered him, he gave him two denarii which is the equivalent of a two-week stay in this inn. And he said to the innkeeper, he said, if you incur any expense on this man, account it towards me. And so not only did he bring the man to a place where he could be restored back to life, not only did he make sure that he was completely restored back to life, he made sure that this man incurred no debt 
which would have further harmed him in his restoration. And that was mercy. Real mercy that came from this Samaritan to the man who was left for dead on the side of the road. And then after Jesus tells the story, he asks the question, which one proved to be a neighbor? Look with me at verses 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I think we would all agree that the one who proved to be a neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. But I want you to see how Jesus reversed the question. The question wasn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, whose neighbor are you? Whose neighbor are you? Are you a merciful person to those who are in need? Are you a merciful person to those who are in need of help? Are you a person that shows compassion by your action when someone is in need of help? One of the things I've really enjoyed about this study in particular on the Good Samaritan is that you can actually just Google Dr. Martin Luther King with Good Samaritan and you could read Dr. King's sermon on this, which I would encourage you to do. It's fabulous. One of the things that Dr. King says about this point, who is my neighbor? He said, and so the first question that the priest asked the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Fair enough, right? Whenever we see these people in need of help, our first response is, what's going to happen to me if I help them? But he said, the, then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not help this man, what will happen to him? Man, that's a good question. If I don't help this man, what will happen to me? Now, I, I can make light of it with my story in Aquatica where that guy knew that I was not going to change that tire and it was not going to be a pretty sight. <laughs> I could see like the, the car falling over on me and maybe he saw that was just the inevitable conclusion, so he helped me. But I want to go a little bit deeper here. We are in a time of this world of great tensions. There's a cry that I want to hear in the community of people of color that says that my life has been on the line and it hasn't been necessary. And as that cry comes and it's louder and louder and we're, we're listening with ears, like the ears that Jesus gave us to hear and the eyes, we're seeing him the situation with the eyes that Jesus gave us to see. And the cries for help are simply that, cries for help. And as they're heard, as we join the chorus and, and we're able to act on behalf of others, whether that's personally or corporately or, or in the systems and structures that exist in our nation, those cries are cries that we are able to help with. And if we'd listen to and we would see them and 
we would see this story in the way of we've received mercy from unexpected people in unexpected places. Can I give that mercy in the same way? We can ask the same question that Dr. King said. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The result would be that this world wouldn't experience the mercy of Christ through the church. That would be a travesty. Do you hear me? That the world wouldn't experience the mercy of Christ through the church. That would be an injustice. But the church is called to be a merciful people. I want to give us three points of application as we close. First point of application is loving God and others requires indiscriminate mercy. That's the big idea. It requires indiscriminate mercy. You cannot separate your love for God and others and compartmentalize life and not show mercy. We too often want to compartmentalize Christianity and say that, that we can love God, but I'm not going to love my neighbor because my neighbor is my enemy. Well, Jesus says, love your enemies. Like that's a command of Scripture. Love your enemies. So if you are going to follow the commands of God because you love him, hello, you're going to follow his command for neighborly love, even to your enemies. Even a Samaritan to a Jew, or a Jew to a Samaritan, or white to black, or black to white, or Latino, or whatever ethnicity it might be, we are called to show that indiscriminate love and mercy. Jim Lehrer who passed away, he was a PBS political correspondent. He was reporting years ago on the genocide that was occurring in Darfur. And he was talking about it by the way of Christian faith. And he asked this question of his audience. He says, where is the piety in reading the Bible and averting our eyes from genocide? Like, we, we could be a people of personal holiness and piety, but in the, in the eternal life stakes, it doesn't count. Because loving God and loving others are, are synonymous. They're one thing. You can't have one without the other. In fact, the cross shows us that there's a, there's a vertical beam where our love for God goes upward, but there's also a horizontal beam where our love for God is reaching those who are to our left and to our right. Where is our piety while we are averting our eyes? It doesn't, it doesn't have harmony. Second thing that we see in, by way of application is that the first step to giving mercy is to recognize something is wrong. The first step to being a people of mercy is to recognize that something is wrong. Um, on Friday night, I watched the, the movie uh, Just Mercy. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie. I would really recommend you to do this. In fact, if you just want to begin to engage in this conversation with a healthy dialogue, let your heart be just kind of churned as you watch the movie Just Mercy. But as I watched this movie, I, I saw it, and it looked like it happened a long time ago. And, you know, according to the cars and such, it looked like it happened a long time ago. And it kind of was a long time ago. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I'm not... I'm not yet 40 years old. I'm 38. And then I Googled it, though. And I saw, I Googled, when was Walter McMillan exonerated? Walter McMillan, by the way, was the man who was on death row 
And I when was Walter McMillan exonerated? 1993. I was 12 years old in 1993. And when I was 12 years old, I thought that all of this racism stuff happened a long time ago, and there were really not as many problems that our world was in today. But 1993 is when it was. And it caused me to pause and say, what in our world here in 2020 is still lagging from 1993 that we have to show mercy towards? Brian Stevenson, who was McMillan's attorney, just incredible, by the way, incredible speaker, author, communicator on all these issues. But he said to the courts after he was exonerated, he said, I think everybody needs to understand what happened because what happened today could happen tomorrow if we don't learn some lesson from this. It's too easy for one person to come into court and to frame a man for a crime he didn't commit. It's too easy for the state to convict someone that, for that crime and then have them sentenced to death. And it was too hard in light of the evidence of his innocence to show this court that he should have never been here in the first place. That's just so heart-wrenching that our American courts, and, and hear me when I say this, because next week we're going to celebrate the 4th of July. Don't hear me saying, I don't love our country. Hear me saying, I love our country so much that I want to be honest with it, and I want to see her change to be the nation of equality that we were meant to be, that we were framed to be. And that love for God and others meanings, means seeing where injustice exists in our nation, applying God's mercy to it. The third point we see here is that mercy must be embraced under the shadow of the cross. This is why the church has to bring redemption. If the church doesn't step in with the mercy of Christ, then the world will not receive the mercy of Christ in this conversation. Many of you may have be uncomfortable with the way the conversation is going. And, and let me tell you, part of that is right. Because if we offer worldly solutions to the problems of our world, we're going to get more worldly problems. But we have to be the church and offer the redemption and grace of Christ in the midst of those problems because Christ was showing mercy on the cross as he took on our judgment. That is the mercy of God. And if we are unwilling to engage this conversation with the mercy of King Jesus, then we are not being merciful as he has been merciful to us. And this is where, church, I plead with us, be the church. You are equipped for it. You have been given all the tools that you need. We have the tools, the Word of God, the suffering Savior, and the Holy Spirit himself as our counselor. And he has given us the tools to be a merciful people. I want to close with this story of John Newton. You've heard of John Newton, right? He is the man who wrote the story, or the song Amazing Grace. Now, John Newton is a self-admitted racist, by the way. You have to be a self-admitted racist if you are a slave trader. That was all he knew. 
He, he was really good at it. He would go to Africa. He would kidnap people. He would put them on a boat. He'd bring them to the United States, and he would sell them. They asked him, how many people you think you sold at the end of his career? He said, probably 20,000. Unreal. And he wrote that song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton also was a pastor. He also joined the abolitionist movement with William Wilberforce and Charles Spurgeon in Great Britain in the late 1700s. In 1807, he was on his deathbed. And the parliament in Great Britain ruled slavery to be illegal. And his, biography, or his biographer says that he rejoiced on his deathbed upon hearing the good news. The thing I love about John Newton is that he read the story of the Good Samaritan and you know who he saw himself to be in the story? It wasn't the Good Samaritan. It wasn't the priest and it wasn't the Levite. It was the man left for dead on the side of the road. And he wrote this poem. He said, How kind the Good Samaritan to him who fell among the thieves. Thus Jesus pities fallen man and heals the wounds the soul receives. Oh, I remember well the day when sorely wounded, nearly slain, like that poor man I bleeding lay and groaned for help, but groaning in vain. Men saw me in this helpless case and passed without compassion by. Each neighbor turned away his face, unmoved by my mournful but as whose name had been my scorn, as Jews, Samaritan, despised, came when he saw me thus forlorn with love and pity in his eyes. Gently he raised me from the ground, pressed me to lean upon his arm, and into every gaping wound he poured his own all-healing balm. And to his church my steps he led, the house prepared for sinners lost gave charge I should be clothed and fed and took upon him all the cost. Thus saved from death, from once secured, I wait till he again shall come when I shall be completely cured and take me to his heavenly home. There through eternal boundless days when nature's wheel no longer rolls, how shall I love, adore, and praise good Samaritan of souls. The lawyer could not, etern could not earn eternal life because he couldn't keep those two commandments. And what Jesus was telling all of Israel to that lawyer that day was that you are the dead man left on the side of the road and I am your good Samaritan. That when we deal with the conversations of racial reconciliation and we apply the mercy of Christ we are saying to the world he is the good Samaritan of souls he's safe he's good he is merciful and he's yours now let's receive him together in Jesus name the church well I didn't pray there <laughs> I was just ready to end it let's pray Oh, Lord, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for this time.
Thanks for this word. Thanks for your spirit's ministry. God, help us be a people of compassion. That we would apply your word by, number one, showing indiscriminate mercy. Number two, seeing that there is a problem. And number three, applying your mercy at the foot of the cross to those who are in need of it. And that, Lord, you would help us show the mercy of King Jesus to this lost and broken world. And that, as John Newton says, he is the good Samaritan of my soul. In Jesus' name.